Welcome to tape number two of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing on with chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. The Nicolaitans were a sect of corrupt professors of Christianity of whose doctrines and deeds little or nothing is certainly known. It is most generally supposed that they were a sort of antinomians who turned the grace of God into lasciviousness, and there is a tradition not well sustained that their heresy was derived from Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, one of the seven deacons of whom we read in Acts 6, verse 5. The similarity of names seems to have suggested this fancy, for there is no historical evidence that one who was of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, was permitted thus to fall away. Their deeds, however, were hateful to Christ and therefore hateful to his real disciples. For one of the infallible marks of a state of grace is to hate what, yes, and whom our Lord hates. Psalm 134 21 and 22. All who read or hear these things are interested in them, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear. What Christ saith in each of these epistles, the Spirit saith, and what is said to each church is said to all the seven, that is, to the whole visible church. To him that overcometh false apostles, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, any doctrines or practices in opposition to the truth of Christ, or militating against the honor of Christ, to such he will give to eat of the tree of life, from which Adam was excluded upon the breach of the first covenant. Genesis 3, verses 22 to 24. What the first Adam lost by the fall, the last Adam will restore with interest. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. The felicity of the saints in glory can be represented only by sensible things, and even then, but very imperfectly. 1 Corinthians 13.12 and 1 John 3.2 Verses 8-11 And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. For none of those things which thou shalt suffer, behold, excuse me, 
fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and ye shall be, have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Smyrna, in the second in order of the seven churches addressed through the ministry as the official representative. Our Savior here assumes those titles mentioned in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, which bespeak his, pers- his divine personal dignity and voluntary humiliation, his, e- his eternal Godhead and true manhood. God manifests in the flesh, having by death triumphed over death to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Hebrews 2:15. This church was subjected to tribulation, persecution in name, substance, and person. The members were either of the poorer sort of citizens of Smyrna, or rendered poor by fines, the spoiling of their goods. But thou art rich, rich in faith, in good works, in the gifts and graces of the Spirit, the earnest of the heavenly inheritance. In this place, a colony of Jews had gained such social influence as to move the populace and even the local magistrates to offer violence to the servants of God. It does not appear that these Jews were professing Christians of any creed, but just such as Paul often encounters in Judea and elsewhere, Acts 16:19-22. The devil instigated the Jews and they, the Gentiles, and both the magistrates to silence the testimony of Jesus' witnesses by which all were tormented. The design of the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning, was to destroy that church, but Christ's design was to try her members. Only some were to be imprisoned, and the time of trial would be limited to ten days, a definite or an indefinite but short time. Those who resist the truth contradict its advocates and blaspheme the holy name of God though professing to be either Jews or Christians, are a synagogue of Satan. A crown of life is promised to such as prove faithful unto death. They shall not be hurt of the second death, that is, eternal death. Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15, verses 12 to 17. And unto the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges, I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. To the church in Pergamus, reproofs and threatenings are addressed by him who has the sharp sword. 
Satan had his throne in this place, whence he assailed the true doctrine and disciples of Christ by heresy and persecution. In such a great fight of afflictions there was one distinguished like Stephen for boldness and fortitude who resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And wherever there is a faithful martyr for Christ who holds fast his name and will not deny his faith, at the risk of his life his divine Lord will condescend and register his name among that noble company who by faith have obtained a good report. Hebrews 6 verse 2. Excuse me, Hebrews 11 verse 2. The doctrine of Balaam and that of the Nicolaeans led to gross immoralities in apostolic times as of old in the days of Moses. Numbers 31 verse 16 and thus it appears that old heresies which have been condemned and afterwards revived under new names and patronized by new leaders in such a case we have the authority of Christ for calling them by the same names of those whose principles they adopt and whose example they emulate it is no breach of charity therefore by our forefathers to designate those who deleted them to the cruel persecutors in Scotland by the name of Ziphites, or to call the arch-traitor Sharp a Judas. The Lord Jesus hates the doctrine as well as deeds of Nicolaitans, who are subversive of truth and godliness, which are subversives of truth and godliness. Those who oppose the doctrines of Balaam and the Nicolaitans in any age, when these are popular, must expect persecution. But when troubles abound for Christ's sake, consolations much more abound by Christ. This is to eat of the hidden manna. Also, the white stone or pebble, the token of justification, will be given to the conqueror in the Christian conflict. The allusion here is to the mode of procedure in courts in judgment among the ancient Greeks. White stones were cast for acquittal, black for condemnation. The manna is hidden, and so is the white stone, both signifying the sustaining and consoling evidence of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, witnessing with the spirit of the persecuted believer that he is a child of God. It is the same thing as the hundredfold in this life promised by Christ, Matthew 19, verse 29. It is worthy of notice in the condition of this church that while among a minority may be found an Antipas, faithful martyr for the cause of Christ against those who hold the doctrine of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. The majority are called upon to repent, evidently for conniving at the destructive error and immoralities of those seducers. And unless the discipline of the church was employed to purge out these rebels, the master would take the work into his own hand and fight against them with the sword of his mouth. And then such as screened or spared these sinners might expect to partake of their just punishment. Rulers in the church must give account for those over whom they watch. Verses 18-29 And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. 
and I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts, and will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you, I say, and unto the rest of Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which you have already hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shrivers, shivers, even as I received of my father, and I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The most lengthy epistle is sent to the church in Thyatira. He who is the Son of God, a divine person, possessing the essential attributes of omniscience and immutability, has more to say to this church than to any of the rest, commending, as usual, whatever was commendable, their works, charity, service, etc., and the last to be more than the first, he has, nevertheless, a few things against them, especially suffering that woman Jezebel to teach. And this woman Jezebel to be taken in a... Excuse me. Is this woman Jezebel to be taken in a literal or figurative sense? Analogy seems to require a metaphorical sense. If, in the preceding epistle, Balaam is not to be understood literally and personally, but figuratively and representatively, so Jezebel represents an individual, or rather, as that other woman, chapter 17, verse 4, a faction or sect who propagated destructive heresy. Jezebel was daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, whom Ahab married contrary to the express law of God, 1 Kings 16.31 and Deuteronomy 7, verse 3. She was a violent persecutor of the Lord's people because she was given to idolatry, and she was an instigator of all the cruelty perpetrated by that wicked king whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. As Ahab suffered his wife to control his policy, giving him the vineyard of Naboth, so it appears the rulers in this church are blamed for permitting a woman to teach contrary to the law of Christ, 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. She called herself a prophetess. Why not then require her to show her credentials? Permitted to usurp the functions of a public teacher, she seduced Christ's servant to join in the abominable rites of the heathen. Spiritual fornication, especially when conducted by female agency, has always issued in that which is literal. This may be verified from the time of Noah and Balaam till the erection of nunneries under the sanction of the man of sin. The distinction here between committing fornication and eating things sacrificed unto idols intimates that the adultery is to be taken in a literal sense. Time was allowed for repentance, and she repented not. All this time the rulers were culpable, therefore the Lord himself, as before, will interpose to rectify such gross sin and scandal. This he would do by visiting these impenitent transgressors with some incurable disease, 
which would issue in certain death. So he did in the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians 11.30. By this example, he would teach all the churches that it is he who searches the reins and hearts, demonstrating his divine omniscience. But unto you, I say, where now is where now is to be discovered in this address of the Savior, that presiding minister or diocesan bishop, whom the anti-Christian prelates affirm our Lord addresses in all these epistles, and unto the rest in Thyatira, still no prelate addressed, but those laborious and patient ones previously commended, who had not known the depths of Satan. Those deceivers pretended to instruct their deluded followers in the deep things of God, but Christ calls them depths of Satan. It is usual for the devil's factors to delude credulous, per, credulous persons with pretending to teach them deep mysteries, curious arts. Acts 19, verses 18 and 19. To such as withstood the adversary and his allies, Christ would give no additional injunctions to those which they had received, and to animate them to continued fidelity and fortitude in future conflicts with these enemies of all righteousness, he holds forth an ample reward. He shall share in the honor of his master conferred on him by his father. Whatever may be comprehended in this promise, it can be made good to the victorious Christian only to him who is divine. None else has power over the nations, but he to whom all power is given in heaven and earth. Matthew 28, verse 18. The morning star may signify Christ himself, chapter 22:16, or the first fruits of the Spirit, Romans 8:23, or the full assurance of grace, 2 Peter 1:19. As before, what Christ saith, the Spirit saith. And the instruction, warning and threatening sent to the church in Thyatira was addressed to all churches and to every human being endowed with an ear to hear. It is assumed in the beginning of the Apocalypse that only some who have sufficient education to read the words of the prophecy of this book, and such is the condescension of our gracious Master that those who, by reason of invincible ignorance, cannot read, yet may share in the reward promised to such as hear and keep the things of this book. And no doubt thousands have received this reward since the begun decline of popery who were privileged to hear and to know the joyful sound of the gospel proclaimed by the heralds of the Reformation in the times of Luther, Calvin, Knox, and others who were their compeers and successors. Many were called from darkness to light in continual and insular Europe who could not read. And all that, all are commanded to search the scriptures. Now to be able to obey this reasonable command, either all must be instructed in the knowledge of Hebrew and Greek, the two languages in which the Bible was originally written, or the Bible must be translated into the languages of all nations. But the former supposition is impracticable, and therefore the latter is dutiful. And after all that has been done and is yet to be accomplished in translating the sacred writings into the languages of the nations of the earth, the angel of the churches will be employed by the chief shepherd in feeding his flock. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God, 
in the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore thou how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names there even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. As hitherto in these epistles we do not discover a presiding minister above an elder, so neither do we in this one find any hint of a bishop and pastors. All Christ bishops are elders, and all are brethren. Acts 20, verses 17 and 28. Prelacy, that is, preferring one pastor before another in office, is expressly prohibited by the church's only lawgiver. Matthew 20, verses 25 and 26. The attempts to annul this law of Christ have caused more sin and suffering to his disciples than any one external agency of the devil. The whole history of the church furnishes the evidence of this. The church in Sardis is addressed by him who hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, who has authority by office to give the quickening influence of the spirit to the dead and his reviving influences to the dormant. For revival presupposes life. Their works were not perfect before God, however they might appear to men. The majority were in a languishing condition, had given themselves over to a detestable neutrality in the Lord's cause. And as the whole body is justly characterized by the major part, this church is described as dead. Be watchful, remember, repent. These duties point out the prevailing sins, namely, slothfulness, forgetfulness, and security. Where these predominate, things that remain are ready to die, and there is no such other remedy but that of applying to the seven spirits of God, which Christ is ready to shed abundantly on all who make believing application. Christ threatens to come as a thief upon those who do not watch. In similitudes, we are not to indulge a licentious fancy in our attempts to interpret them. The object of the thief's visit and that of Christ are not the point of resemblance. For the thief cometh not but for for to steal and to kill and to destroy. The point and only point of resemblance is the suddenness of the visit. Ignorance or neglect of this rule in interpretation has been a fruitful source of error, especially in expounding revelation. In this epistle, the order hitherto observed by the Savior is reversed. What was praiseworthy in other churches was first noticed. Here the commendation follows the reproof. Thou hast a few names. A virtuous minority are undefiled in the way. They have nobly withstood the prevailing contamination, and therefore Christ will admit them to fellowship and honor. The victor shall be clothed in white raiment. Grace shall be perfected in glory. And their names, which were inscribed in the book of life, 
the register of the church of the firstborn shall be confessed by Christ before his father and before his angels as having followed the Lamb. When others went back like Oprah, Ruth 1, verse 15, let those who, having put their hand to the plow, are tempted to look back, consider what the Spirit saith to the church in Sardis, verses 7 to 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This church, like the one in Smyrna, is without rebuke in the midst of similar trials. Christ's message is prefaced, as usual, by some description of himself, implying his supreme deity and authority. He that is holy, he that is true, is more than a creature. As there is none good but one that is God, so there is none holy as the Lord, Jehovah, 1 Samuel 2, 2. Here is another among many plain proofs of our, fa- our Savior's proper divinity. His divine authority is held forth in his having the key of David. A key is the symbol of authority, Matthew 16:19, And the reference is to that prophecy, Isaiah 22, verses 20 to 24, in which the mediatorial dominion of Christ is set forth by calling Eliakim to the place of authority in the room of Shebna, The key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. It is in virtue of this extensive grant of power from the Father that the Lord Christ has a right as mediator to send his ambassadors into all nations to call sinners, rebels, back to their rightful allegiance and also to execute deserved punishment upon all who do harm to his servants. Psalm 105, verse 15. In the exercise of his rightful authority, he has set before this church an open door of liberty, of opportunity, of activity, that she may put forth her little strength in keeping Christ's word and confessing his name amidst opposition, reproach, and violence. For it is obvious that when impostors fail to reach their objects by deceit, they will resort to forcible measures, because this church was unable to purge herself by corrective discipline, having but a little strength, Therefore, Christ declares his purpose to strip those, these lying Jews of their cloak of hypocrisy and exhibit them in their true character, a synagogue or church of Satan, James 2.2. 2. 
seeing that in apostolic times there were apostles, ministers, churches of the devil, it is to be supposed that we violate the law of charity if in our own degenerate age, when heresies abound, when ecclesiastical order is trampled upon, we venture to apply the language of the Holy Spirit to unholy and profane amalgamations. No, it is part of the special business of Christ's witnesses to unmask species, hypocrites, and warn of danger from false teachers. 2 Corinthians 11:13-15 and Galatians 1:6 and 7. That their folly may be made manifest to all men. 2 Timothy 3:8-9, 2 Peter 2:1 and 3. The cruel enemy who in the day of prosperity boasts of his success in the day of adversity becomes the most arrant coward and cringing suppliant whether it be Saul or Shimei, 1 Samuel 15.30 or 2 Samuel 19.18. Haughty persecutors have been changed to humble suitors for an interest in the prayers of their victims to worship before their feet. The word of Christ's patience may signify any truth or doctrine of the Bible which is is of supernatural revelation. The same idea is suggested by the phrase, the present truth. Any divine truth which may come to be opposed or denied, especially as it may bear upon the personal glory of our Redeemer. Love to Christ is often tested by an enlightened and firm adherence to the truth as it is in Jesus, when false apostles will sell it for a mess of pottage. Proverbs 23.23 and 2 Corinthians 13.18. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians 13.8. The first promise here is of a temporal kind of protection in time of general danger. The temptation thus predicted may refer to some of those ten persecutions waged by the Roman emperors against the Christians, as that of Trajan in particular, but doubtless, like many other predictions, it was to have more than one fulfillment. The expression, all the world, does indeed sometimes mean the Roman, Roman Empire, Luke 2, one, but perhaps it would be too rash to affirm that it is to be always thus limited. Like the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, phrases which have unquestionably a twofold signification, so it will be safer to consider this expression as of a similar kind. All other churches would be exposed to trial from which this one would be exempted. The trial might consist of persecution or the spreading of heretical principles and wicked practices followed by apostasies. At such a time of trial, a firm adherence to the doctrines which are after godliness would be imperative duty and the only way to secure the victor's crown. The gracious reward of fidelity here promised is a permanent and honorable place in the heavenly temple, the temple of Christ's Father, whose name the citizen of the New Jerusalem should bear forever and should be known and recognized as fellow citizen with the saints. These names may be safely interpreted as importing son daughter of the Lord Almighty, citizen of Zion, Christian. As the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch, so their gracious master will confess their names before his father and the holy angels. Acts 11.26 and Revelation 3.5. Please turn the tape over at this time and continue listening on side two. Thank you. Verses 14 to 22 of Revelation 3. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, 
These things say at the end, Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, and thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that thy, the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him, and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. It appears that in Paul's time a Christian church had been planted in Laodicea. Colossians 2, verses 1 and 4, verse 16. This church had the benefit of his ministry as well as that of Ephesus. And as both these churches were comparatively near to all the other five, we may suppose that a man of his zealous active, excuse me, of his zealous, active, and persevering character and habits would impart unto them some spiritual gift. Romans 1.11 It is evident that this church had degenerated more than all the others. In her there is nothing to commend. Her officers and members are described in their real character by him who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Each of these titles speak the divine dignity of Christ. They are all to be understood in an absolute, not a comparative sense, as there is none good absolutely so, but one, that is God, Matthew 19:17. so Christ only is the Amen, in such sense that he cannot lie as a witness. He speaks that which he hath seen with his Father, John 8:38. Jesus is, moreover, the beginning, the author, owner, and sovereign ruler of the creation of God. This is clearly taught in Colossians 1, verses 8, 15 to 18, where the same person who, in verse 18, is called the beginning, as here is, in verse 17, said to be before all things, by whom, verse 16, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. Creation is a proper word to work of God only, but our Redeemer has created all things. Now, according to Hebrews 3, 4, he that built all things is God. Therefore, he of whom these things are spoken is the Most High God. And so said the inspired prophet long ago, For thy maker is thine husband. Isaiah 54, 5. In the language of Jeremiah 10, verse 11. Thus do we say to Arians, Socinians, and other self-styled Unitarians, Thy gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. And their blinded votaries, except they repent, shall all likewise perish. However far the body of this church had declined, it does not appear that they had yet, as a community, gone the length of denying the Lord that bought them. 
Spiritual pride, self-sufficiency seems to have been the prevailing sin among these degenerate professors. Like the Pharisee, they would boast of their riches, the spiritual gifts which they possessed, by which they flatter themselves that they were not as other men. Possibly they might excel in knowledge, that knowledge which puffeth up, in utterance that great swelling words of vanity by which they gain both filthy lucre and the admiration of an ignorant and carnal multitude. Such is too often the actual condition of ministers and people when they are all the while under the power of sin and wholly blind to their spiritual destitution. Self-deception is fatal and it would be just in the Lord Jesus to give such persons up to their own heart's lust. So he threatens I will spew thee out of my mouth as a man's stomach loathes that which is nauseating. The like figure is used by Isaiah, Isaiah 65, verse 5, personating his Lord when describing similar characters. These are a smoke in my nose, intolerably offensive. To us, the case of this church would appear hopeless. It is not so, however. On the contrary, he assures them that these sharp rebukes proceed from love. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Hebrews 12, 6-8 And from the counsel which he gives as farther evidence of his love, we learn wherein this church was lacking, in grace, justifying righteousness, and the saving, self-searching illumination of the Holy Spirit. As this church had not the promise of exemption from the coming temptation, verse 10, the gold tried in the fire of persecution will be indispensable to preserve any from apostasy, whereby their cloak of hypocrisy would be removed and they would be exposed to shame. Christ stands and knocks. If the church refuses him admittance, yet if but one will hear his voice and open the door, he will certainly communicate such consolations the joy of his salvation, that it may be said they sup together. Song of Solomon 5.1 This, as before, is the hundredfold promised in the, this life, as a foretaste and pledge of heavenly felicity. There is added a participation in his honor and authority, for those who suffer with him shall also reign with him. 2 Timothy 2.12 Whilst this honor is to all his saints, it is to be conferred upon them by Christ. This assertion may seem to contradict what Christ said to the mother of Zebedee's sons, Matthew 20, verse 23, to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. No, it is not his to give, but except to them for whom it is prepared of his father. Then it is his to give his right of the honor and felicity promised to such as fight the good fight of faith None can have an adequate conception without actual experience. 1 John 3, 2 General Observations Although the fundamental doctrine of the Trinity in unity be not expressly taught or asserted in these epistles, it is nevertheless often and plainly presupposed. Each epistle begins and closes with express mention of two divine persons as equally the author. What Christ says, the Spirit says to these churches, but there is a third divine person often mentioned who is called God and Father, chapter 2, 7, and 18, 27, etc. And in the first verse of chapter 3, one speaks who has the seven spirits of God. 
where the Trinity is included. Thus, while in these epistles this important doctrine of the adorable Trinity, a doctrine which lies at the very foundation of a sinner's hope, is obscurely revealed as being clearly discovered in the preceding parts of the Holy Scriptures. The subsequent part of this book of Revelation is intended, among other such objects, to demonstrate the distinct subsistence and economical actings of the co-equal and eternal three in the protection and salvation of the church and in the control and moral government of the universe. Again, on the groundless and chimerical assumptions of those expositors who view these epistles as prophetical of seven successive periods of the destiny of the church general, the last estate would be worse than the first, Laodicea being the worst of all. But this is obviously contrary to the description contained in chapter 20, verses 10, 1 to 10, where the saints are represented as in possession and exercise of all the purchase and social rights. Neither does authentic history prove that the Church of Christ was more prosperous under the tent persecutions by the heathen Roman empires than in the apostolic age as the superior condition of the church in Smyrna to that of the Ephesus would require. The very contrary is true, and hence the groundlessness of such interpretation, however respectable the names of its authors. The object of our Savior in all the instructions, counsels, warnings, rebukes, and threatenings addressed to these several churches is doubtless the real benefit of his people in after generations, just as his dealings with the church in Old Testament times were written for our admonition and learning, Romans 15.4 and 1 Corinthians 10.11. Moreover, some per- persons have inferred from our Lord's treatment of these churches a divine warrant for the existence and an imperative Christian duty for the charitable recognition of all the conflicting and antagonistic organizations of our time, popularly styled Christian churches. But as the designation Christian churches is in the apprehension of some too general, the term evangelical is used by them as restrictive of the term Christian. Still, the question will present itself, what constitutes a church evangelical? And this question is still without any definite answer. Perhaps no two persons would include in one category the same denominations of professing Christians. For example, is a community to be considered a Christian church in which the doctrine of Balaam is taught? Does the law of charity require the recognition of an organization as a Christian church in which a Jezebel would be suffered to teach and to seduce the servants of Christ? Is that a Christian church which denies the supreme deity of Christ and rejects the seals of the covenant of grace, the only charter of the Christian church's existence on earth? Or is that combination to be viewed as a Christian church which has no regular ministry but expressly rejects the pastors and teachers of Christ's appointment and the morality of the Sabbath? These and many other questions of similar or analogous import will suggest negative answers to all who fear God, respect his authority, and are free from the bewildering effects of popular error. It ought to be considered that all these seven churches were one church as originally constituted, having the same, that is, a divine scriptural organization. And although in the divine forbearance they were still owned by Christ, notwithstanding the errors, 
heresies and immoralities which had crept into them. Yet it is manifest that he threatened some of them with divorce, total extinction in case of impenitence. He has indeed fulfilled his awful threats in making them a desolation. It is reasonable to suppose that he would reorganize these or recognize others which incorporate the same or the like cor corruptions in doctrine and practice for tolerating which he has removed their candlestick or spewed them out of his mouth. To say so or write so does not manifest the charity which will rejoiceth not in iniquity but rejoices in the truth. Alas, the present condition of the church general contains frequent evidences that our Savior's affectionate counsels, solemn warnings, and awful threatenings are neither duly pondered nor dutifully regarded. Chapter 4 With this chapter, the prophetical part of the Apocalypse begins. This is the place where the third division of the book commences, of which intimation had been given to John. Write the things which shall be hereafter, chapter 119. The third is, therefore, much the largest part of the whole book, comprising all from the fourth to the twenty-second chapter. chapters. It is also to be noticed that the fourth and fifth chapters are properly of the nature of an introduction to what follows presenting to view, as it were, a grand theater on which to be exhibited the dramatic characters and events which constitute the outline of history in the church and the world from the apostles' time till the consummation of all things. Expositors commonly frame and lay down some rules by which they suppose symbolic language in general and the symbols of this book in particular may be interpreted. On examination, however, it will be discovered that the learned are not agreed either in the nature or number of such rules, and sometimes an expositor who has exerted his ingenuity most in devising canons of interpretation forgets to apply them. All languages, whether spoken or written, are more or less metaphorical, interspersed with what are called figures of speech. It is customary to represent nations and tribes whose language abounds in symbols as but little advanced in civilization and to view oriental nations as more disposed to indulge in tropes and figures than those of the West. But perhaps this relative estimate of the modes of speech in the eastern and western hemispheres will admit of some modification when we consider the gesticulations and similes by which the aborigines of America attempt to give expression to their ideas. The word hieroglyphics signifies sacred sculpture derived from the ancient mode of writing by the priest of Egypt has received conventional currency among the learned as descriptive of any writing which is obscure, hard to be understood, and all who read this book will find some of it dark indeed. The divine author intended it that it should be so. Chapter 18, verse 18, yet he calls it emphatically a revelation. We have already noticed that the symbols in this book are taken from the ceremonial law in part and part are taken from the works of creation. The heavens and the earth present to our senses a variety of material objects, some more, some less calculated to arrest our attention. Among these, the sun, moon, and stars, earth and sea, mountains and rivers occupy prominent places. To facilitate our knowledge of these and prompt reference to any part 
of them, we generalize or throw them into groups. Thus we speak familiar, familiarly of the solar system, the animal vegetable or mineral kingdom. Now just transfer these systematized objects from the material and physical to the moral and spiritual world. Then consider what relation any one object bears to the system and what influence it has upon the other objects of which it is a part and its import may be generally, satisfactorily, and certainly ascertained. Thus, the same canons or rules which we apply in the interpretation of other writings will be equally available in searching the scriptures, never, never forgetting that it is the Spirit of Christ that guides into all truth, or his own all-comprehensive rule of interpretation, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. 1 Corinthians 2.13 in order to the right observance of the divinely prescribed rule comparing spiritual things with spiritual, we must often refer to the prophecies of the Old Testament, to the second and seventh chapter of Daniel in particular, because that prophet, while the church was captive under the power of literal Babylon, was favored with the discovery of the purpose of God that a succession of imperial powers should afterwards arise to try the patience and the faith of the saints. As in the case of Pharaoh, so the whole history of the rise, reign, and overthrow of succeeding persecuting powers, Jehovah's design was precisely the same, to make his power known and that his name might be declared throughout all the earth, Exodus 9.16 and Romans 9.17. In connection with this, he would glorify the riches of his grace on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, by sustaining them in the furnace of trial. Verses 1 to 3 of chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door was open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come hither, come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardin stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. After these things contained in the three preceding chapters the glorious vision of the mediatorial person and the writing and sending of the seven epistles, there seems to have intervened a pause. While John was in expectation of farther discoveries of things which were to be thereafter, Behold, a door was opened in heaven, the place of Jehovah's special residence. But as this heaven is sometimes the theater of war, chapter 12, verse 7, of course it is not to be taken literally. As a symbol, it generally signifies organized society over which the Most High presides. The door open afforded the means to John of seeing the objects within. The voice, as of a trumpet, which arrested his attention, was that of Christ, the voice of the Lord, full of majesty. Psalm 29, verse 4, and chapter 1 of Revelation, verses 10 and 11. John was in his own apprehension, like Paul, caught up into the third heaven, that he might behold a glorious succession, things which must be hereafter. Why must they be? simply because such was the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working, whose counsel stands and who doth all his pleasure. Ephesians 
Can a rational creature work without a plan? And shall mortal man be rational, more rational than his maker? The objects which were presented to John are not to be understood as material objects. It was requisite that he should be in the spirit before he could see them. The exercise of his bodily senses, the organs of sensation, must be suspended that he might have a perception of the objects presented in vision. As the spirits of just men made perfect in glory in a disembodied state are still conscious and active, so are we warranted to conceive of souls yet in the body as being in a state analogous, falling into a trance. Acts 10.10 The first object seen by John was a throne set in heaven, the emblem of sovereignty. Once sat on the throne, who cannot be described only in an obscure manner by comparison, being the invisible God whom no eye hath seen, nor can see, Yet we know with certainty it is the person of the Father, because he is, in the next chapter, plainly distinguished from the Lamb, seated on the throne, and in the throne he is greater than the Mediator. A relation between these divine persons was shadowed forth in Egypt between Pharaoh and Joseph. Genesis 41, verse 40. Occupying the throne of the universe... The Father sustains the majesty of the Godhead and represents the persons of the adorable Trinity. For the idea is equally unscriptural and absurd that either person appears or acts in absolute or essential character. Isaiah 42.1, John 10.18, and 14.31 of John. He that sat was like a jasper and a sardine stone, not like any human form, but an allusion perhaps to the Shekinah, or visible glory above the mercy seat in the most holy place. He appeared in the essential purity or holiness of his nature and awful justice, one who will by no means clear the guilty. The rainbow is the familiar emblem or token of the covenant. Its being round about the throne teaches us that God in wrath remembers mercy. As green is the color most pleasing to the natural eye, so is the rainbow of covenant mercy most grateful to the penitent sinner, contemplated by the eye of faith. God is ever mindful of his covenant. Psalm 1, 16, verse 5. Excuse me, 111, verse 5. Ever since the revelation of mercy to fallen man, God deals with mankind not in essential or absolute character, but by covenant in economical standing. All along since that epoch in the history of this world, the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. As yet, however, the Son is not brought upon the stage in the Apostles' present view. The Son has his appropriate place in the vision, where he will appear as mediator. In the conflict to be carried on for 1260 years by the combined powers of earth and hell against the Lord and his anointed, we have the agencies exhibited in these two ch chapters only on heaven's side. The opposing host will afterwards appear. Verses 4 and 5. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. 
To John's view, the throne seen from one side would appear to be surrounded by a segment of a circle within which were four and twenty seats or thrones occupied by an equal number of elders. In society, divinely organized, elders have always been the legal representatives of God's covenant society in civil and ecclesiastical relations. Exodus 3.16 and Acts 20.17 These four and twenty elders represent the collective body of God's people under the Old and New Testaments, the twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles, chapters 7, 7, excuse me, 7, 4, and 21, verses 12 to 14 of Revelation. Their white raiment and the crowns of gold indicate their legal state and moral purity, their justification and sanctification, as also their promotion to honor to reign as kings, chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 5, verse 10, reign on the earth, chapter 20, verse 4. Allusion is had to the terrific scene at Sinai by the lightnings, etc., when Moses did exceedingly fear and quake, importing that God, our God, is a consuming fire to all his impenitent, especially anti-Christian enemies, even under the milder economy of the New Testament, Hebrews 10, verses 28 to 31, in chapter 20, verse 10. The seven lamps of fire are explained to mean the seven spirits of God, in allusion to the golden candlestick in the temple, Exodus 37, verse 23, and in Zechariah 4, verse 2, and signifying the gifts and graces of those who are baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire. This ends tape 2 of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele. Please go to the next tape in the series and continue listening. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Notes on the Apocalypse by David Still, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in softcover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please, don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed book.